So this is how the whole world ends When all mankind at last repents For self-appointed governments Make no sense And hence we no longer Rise to the
Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Stephen Page and Gravity, one of the highlights from his last LP, Discipline, Heal Thyself, Part 2. As always, I've got Stephen here today to talk about his career and forthcoming tour here in the UK. So uh, let's hear my chat with Stephen. Hi, Stephen. Yes, hello. How are you? Welcome virtually to England, although you're coming over to the UK imminently, which is uh, great news. Yeah, I'm looking forward to coming back. It's going to be great. Nice to see you. Pleasure's all mine. So um, would you describe yourself as an Anglophile or in terms of the music? I am. I mean, as a kid, okay, I came, I came, the first time I came to the UK was when I was 15 in the summer of 1985. And I, uh, I came on a choir tour. I sang with the Scarborough, Scarborough, Ontario Schools Youth Choir. Which was not the kind of thing you'd be like, uh, unlike, say, the football team or the hockey team, you wouldn't necessarily walk around your school flying the flag of the All Scarborough Youth Choir. Uh, however, it was, this, it was an amazing experience. It kind of, I think it really t- turned me into the musician that I became. And in the summer of 85, we came and did a tour of the UK. So we did sang in Westminster Abbey and we sang St. Martin in the Fields. We sang at um, the uh, choir. I steadfought in uh, in uh, Wales, and it was this amazing experience for us. But I think I had such a good time on that trip that everything after that had to be British music. So I became obsessed with. We could get you know the enemy and the melody maker maybe like two weeks after the fact at an indie record shop in downtown Toronto, and I would take the subway to get down there just to buy a two week old copy of Melody Maker with Sieg Sieg Sputnik on the front or something. So since then, that's my music. And you haven't been over here for about four years. Did you get a chance to come here and uh, play the tracks from Discipline? Yeah, we came over in 2018. Uh, was the last time we were there. So it was right when that record came out, or sometime in that in that group of time. And we, that I had come the year before in 2017 on the first time since uh, since leaving BNL. I left Bare Naked Ladies in 2009. So it was you know eight years between visits or i guess i'd almost nine because i think last time i played there with bare naked ladies was 2008 and um came over brought my my wife and my kids over on holiday in the 2016 and just put on like instagram and twitter i said to people if i happen to show up in regent's park on a saturday afternoon would anybody come and watch that and about 100 people showed up and i like somebody brought me a guitar i borrowed a guitar for an hour and did a set and i thought okay there are still people here who'd want to come and see me so i got my i told my agent i luckily there's youtube evidence of it and uh he booked us a tour after that so we've been back a couple times but it'll be it'll be really nice to be back on the road and obviously a, a full range of material that you're covering and um still some of those tracks from your last lp sound very fresh and relevant such as uh gravity and that, that's a song that's dramatic in, in a way in its musical style yeah it's uh Kind of, uh, it's got that kind of that Cuban Montuno piano, and uh, and uh, I tried to do as much research as I could on my clave patterns and all that kind of stuff because I knew some Latin music fan was going to get mad if it was if it was wrong. But it's a song about what I saw as as the as the creeping distrust of or mistrust of science, and now we've seen it all kind of like come true in vivid colors in the last two years. And I was like, I, I hate to say I told you so, but I told you so. Very much so. I think going back to that Anglophile thing, that shooting star from the album has got a, a real Jeff Lynne, albeit through a Wilburys filter kind of sound as well. Yeah, Jeff Lynne is 
one of my absolute heroes. Like, oh, there, I could put on and probably a lesser, a lesser loved ELO record, which was Time, is like, I guess it came out for me at the right time. I was probably at 10 or 11 and became obsessed with that record. I can still put that on at any time in my car or, or you know, going for a walk with my earbuds on or whatever, and it can absolutely transport me. So I thought my goal with the shooting star was to do a Wilburys track and try and be all the different Wilburys. So I get to do kind of a a uh, Roy Orbison impersonation and a Jeff Lynne impersonation and a Dylan and Petty and so on.
And one of the other great English songwriters is Stephen Duffy, who you've collaborated extensively on songs like Jane, and you could just go on to some brilliant stuff. But the amazing thing is, is that you had contact with Stephen around the time of his initial success when you were actually a teenager, weren't you? That's right. On that trip that I took with my choir in 85, the thing I used to do as a, as a kid was I'd go to the record shop before any trip I took or a vacation or a time at summer camp or something like that. And I'd buy one cassette and I'd put it for my Walkman. And that would be my one album that I would listen to over and over again on the trip. And I remember standing in the record shop trying to decide between REM Fables of the Reconstruction and Brian Ferry, Boys and Girls. Yeah. And Stephen Duff, Tintin Duffy, The Ups and Downs. Yeah. And, you know, like I knew one song off each of those records. And I just decided, I stood, I stared at them for like an hour. Eventually walked out with The Ups and Downs. And I just absolutely fell in love with that record. You know, stylistically, it was it's very much of its time. Although it's also, it's kind of a mix of, you've got these synth pop songs, stuff that has this kind of almost, well, there are like songs with the art of noise on them and that kind of thing. So yeah. it's, it's very much of its time that way. And then there are these songs that are, produced by Booker T. Jones that are piano and vocal or, you know, like acoustic folk songs. And, uh, you know, I, I gravitated to both, but it became the soundtrack to, I guess, a, that summer of having my first girlfriend and those kinds of things. And I, when I had my heart broken by the end of that summer, I decided I would write to the address on the inside of the cassette and tell him my story. And for whatever reason, and I think he doesn't even quite know why now. This is obviously pre-internet. You can't just fire off a quick five-word tweet back at somebody. He wrote me a letter, and and uh, you know I told him that I was starting to write music, so he was very encouraging with that and sent me some signed pictures and so on. So then when I started making music, I would send him the tapes of what I was working on, and he was he always listened to them and he was always encouraging. So when I came I came back over in the summer of '89, and Bare Naked Ladies had just started. We had started the year before. And I was uh, going to do a summer session at Cambridge University. But before that, I was just backpacking around Britain. And I had written Stephen. And again, before cell phones and before uh, yeah. internet. And, and he said, well, I'm going to be rehearsing with a lot of the time at this farmhouse. If you want to come and you know hang out for a bit, we can. And I, so I called him from, I don't know, Edinburgh or something. And I said, I'm thinking of coming down there. And I remember it was a rail strike. So I took a bunch of buses to get down there. And he, he could have just totally ditched me, left me hanging. But he came and picked me up at the station. And I got to watch my favorite band rehearse their brand new album for like three days before I went to school. So you've stayed in touch and, and formed a, one of the strongest songwriting partnerships of your career. Uh, yeah, he's you know still one of my absolute best friends and and i you know, like i'm grateful for his generosity i remind myself of that kind of generosity with people when i uh when i you know get catch myself being a little insular sometimes i think well he you know he extended it to me i should i should be able to do the same thing but yeah i'm, I'm actually just about to go and do some try and write some new songs with steven next week
being together is what I cannot explain to shame. One of the really interesting things about Bare Naked Ladies, and this was very apparent from your very first single, is the way that you melded that humour at times, but also had a, another point of it. So it worked in kind of a dual ways. And, and Be My Yoko Ono is a great example straight out of the bat of that. It was, I actually wrote that song that summer when I was at Cambridge. I remember sitting in my uh, dormitory room writing that that song, looking out the window and and you know being a little homesick and homesick for my girlfriend and and thinking about uh thinking about the beatles and <laughs> as i always want to do as i'm staring at a window i'm often thinking about the beatles and uh it was easy to kind of just have that song come tumbling out there that song reached sean lennon and then ultimately yoko and and they both loved it didn't they that was fun yeah when we first went the first time we went to new york city to play which was for the what they used to sing the new music seminar a big uh kind of industry festival, but it was like a precursor to South by Southwest the way it is now. We played a showcase there and some enterprising PR person got in touch with, uh, with Sean Ono Lennon and he came to the show. He was a teenager, but he came, he, he had a copy of our, of our cassette and he loved it and uh, was generous enough to pose with us for a picture. And then uh, when it came time to make a, a video for the song, Yoko actually gave us footage to use in the, in the video, which was very generous of her. She's always been really, they got the joke in a way other people didn't. I think people thought that we were making fun of her. She was always the easy target, of course, right? And the song is not about that at all. I mean, it has fun with her. And uh, we do the kind of B-52 style impersonation of, <laughs> of Yoko. But, uh, you know, the song is about, is, is about seeing that if you have the opportunity to have that kind of connection with another human being, you can actually understand why you would leave your job if that was if that was what it came down to. And if there's someone you can live without, then do so. And if there's someone you can just shove out, then do so. 
You can be my Yokono You can follow me wherever I go Be my, be my, be my, be my Yokono oh, Isn't it beautiful to see two people so much in love Bare naked ass, two virgins hand in hand and hand in hand in glove. But now that I'm far away, it doesn't seem to me to be such a pain. To have you hanging off my ankle like some kind of ball of chain. You can be my Okono. Follow me wherever I go. Be my, be my, be my, be my Yoko. Be my Yoko. Oh no, here we go. Our life is one big fun. Oh no, here we go. It's Yoko sing I know that when I say this, I may be stepping on pins and needles. But I don't like all these people slagging her for breaking up the Beatles. Don't blame it on Yoki, even if I was John and you were Yoko, I would gladly give up music genius. Just to have you as my very own personal Venus. You can be my Yoko Ono. You can follow me wherever I go. Be my, be my, be my, be my Yoko Ono. Be my, 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 And from that same era is the song Brian Wilson, which is uh, another way that you recall or embody another great artist. Yeah, I didn't know much about the Beach Boys growing up. Like, all I knew were kind of the earlier hits yeah. that I always saw as being kind of lightweight. I just It didn't appeal to me in the way that, you know, I felt like if I was going to compete with the Beatles, as I say, I always think I just, they're always at the forefront of my mind. It seemed like it just wasn't for me. And I had a, a friend at university who said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. You know, I, so I had made him a tape of Velvet Underground stuff because I was very much into, I made him a Velvet Underground tape and a Leonard Cohen tape. And then he, he made me, this is back in the days when you make each other tapes. And he made me a tape of Beach Boy stuff. And, you know, included a bunch of like the Dennis Wilson tracks, Pacific Ocean Blue stuff. And, uh, but also he, he just educated me about the story. And I started to under, this was before they had done any of the smile yeah. reissue or, uh, or re-recordings or anything else. So it was all just lore then. And this was again, on pre-internet, you had just, it was really hard to find those songs. So if somebody gave you a tape with that bootleg recording of vegetables on it or something, then you're like, it's gold. And that to me was just, it blew my mind. And I became a huge fan and kind of obsessed with the story. But at, at that time in the late eighties, Brian Wilson, and I think his story, this would be right around the time that his kind of comeback solo album on Sire came out. Mm. He was kind, it was kind of treated as a joke. You know, if you look back at, at music journalism of the time, Rolling Stone magazine and stuff, it was kind of like 
ha ha, Brian Wilson got fat and ate a lot of hamburgers and lay in bed and had a sandbox with his piano in it. It was kind of like a rock. It was a joke about the excesses of rock and roll. But I knew even as a kid, I got the sense of like that it was something deeper and sadder than that. It was about trauma. It was about mental illness and uh, about struggle. And the thing is, Brian also didn't like to talk about his mental health struggles because yeah. back then there was so much stigma attached to it. So he tried to deny a lot of that stuff. But it was for me, you know, I've struggled with depression my whole life, but I didn't understand what that was. It, was never, it wasn't diagnosed then. But I was able to write a song that kind of mixed all of that together. Really, it's about the power of music to lift you out of an awful situation. But I look back at it now, it's kind of amazing to look at something that my 19-year-old self did that is really about music and art and depression and ways to cope with it that I didn't like. I didn't even really know I was writing about. It's a nice gift you can give your older self sometimes. Again, you had the ultimate compliment in that Brian loved the song and, and even did his own version of it live. Yeah, that was incredible. When we were recording our album Maroon in Los Angeles in 2000, Don Was was producing it. And you know, Don had worked with Brian. They made that just wasn't made for these times, filmed together and so on. So one day we showed up at the studio and... Don said, I've got a surprise for you. And uh, so we went into the studio and there's Brian Wilson and uh, his wife, Melinda. And he goes, oh, you know, whatever. We talked to him for a bit and we got a picture taken with him. And then he goes, I got something to play for you guys. And they, they press play on the DAT machine or whatever. Hmm. And it's him and his band. It's the live from the Roxy version of them singing our song, Brian Wilson. Like it was just, and I'm looking, he's in the room with us while this is happening. All he said was, he said, because I say playing my guitar and singing fun, fun, fun. If you if you want to find me, I'll be out in the sandbox wondering where the hell all the love has gone. Um, and I said, playing my guitar and singing fun, fun, fun. And he said, I changed it to playing my piano because I don't play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he plays bass guitar. But anyways, he changed the words. And I thought, you're allowed to do that, Brian. Go ahead. You go ahead. And then uh, I remember we played him one of our songs. We thought, well, we have to play him one of our songs. So we, this was at what was called Cello at that time, that studio, but it's, it was uh United recorders. So it's where they yes. did much of those pet sounds and uh, smile recordings. And Kevin from our band had said, uh, you know, is it, how does it feel being back in this studio after you've done all that stuff here? And he goes, yeah, it's fine. Like Brian is completely unsentimental about that stuff. It's like, it's a studio. It's just a place where you go to make the music. There's nothing, nothing hallowed about it. But for us, it was very exciting to be working in that studio. We played him one of the songs from our from our record that we were working on, this song called Tonight is the Night I Fell Asleep at the Wheel, which is kind of a cinematic, macabre, and humorous song. And it finished, and he goes, hmm, that's interesting. Which, of course, that's what my mom says when she doesn't really like something. That's interesting. And then he said, I'm hungry. I need to get some sushi. And then they left. And he just, as they left, he said, see you guys. Don't eat too much. That was his words of advice. Don't eat too much. Drove downtown in the rain 9.30 on a Tuesday night Just to check out the late night Record shop Call it impulsive Call it compulsive Call it insane When I'm surrounded I just can't stop it's a matter of instincts, a matter of conditioning, and a matter of fact. You can go where Pablo's dog. 
Ring a bell and I'll salivate How'd you like that? Dr. Landon, tell me I'm just a pentagon It's when I have Lying in bed Just like Brian Wilson did Well, I have Lying in bed Just like Brian Wilson did
Am I right that call and answer is, in a way, a musical response or, or reaction to Brian Wilson in that you've got Brian Wilson that has got elements of it that have got a bit more of a complicated structure and Colin Answer tries to sort of simplify that a bit. Yeah, there were a couple of songs in that era where Colin Answer and It's All Been Done is the other one that was, I remember being, there was a live version of Brian Wilson that was that had cropped up several years after the first version. The live version in about 96 and 97 became a single in the US and was doing fairly well. But I heard it and I was kind of, I at that point, I would get embarrassed. I'd hear a song of mine, and I would only hear the mistakes. And I luckily don't feel that way now because that puts that's a that's a taxing way to feel. But I would hear anything of mine. I'd be in a, in the supermarket or something, and I'd hear, and I think, oh, too wordy or whatever. And that's what I, I remember one day hearing Brian Wilson and thinking, too wordy. So I decided I needed to start writing some songs that were clear and succinct. And so it's all been done. Has this chorus that says "woo hoo hoo"? Like how can you how can you be as any more clear and succinct? And I told a story very briefly in very few lines. And it was the same thing with Call and Answer, where it was, how do I write a song that paints a picture, tells a story in a unique way, but doesn't have to be filled with words. But then at the same time, on that same album, we end up putting out One Week, which has more words than just about any pop song in history. <laughs> and of course, it was our biggest hit. So what do I know? Whatever works, really, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. <laughs>
Turning back to your solo career, uh, straight away, great tracks from page one, including A New Show, which uh, you can kind of see it as different meanings in terms of a, a new start and a new perspective. And is that how you um, having the freedom as a solo artist embodies that feel? Yeah, I didn't really at the time when I was started writing it, I didn't know what the song was about. And I tended to write, you know, my, my go to for many years was to write a song that was kind of a, a way to beat myself up in song. To tell, you know, show the world what a bad guy I am. Um, and that was kind of became my hallmark. So I started writing a song that was that again. And then things that, things sort of fell apart with Bare Naked Ladies, and I eventually left the group. And it was really tough for me. I really felt kind of at sea and uh, didn't know how to, you know, Bare Naked Ladies as my band, the band that I started with Ed Robertson when I was 18, it was my identity. And here I am 20 years later uh, trying to figure out how to have my own identity outside of that group. And uh, my friend Craig Northey from the Canadian band, The Odds, one of my favorite bands, we've toured together a bunch and just fantastic guitar player and songwriter and producer. He came down to visit me and potentially write some songs. And I played him this thing and he just helped me shape it in a way that was this little journey. And just by tweaking some words here and there, all of a sudden I could realize what the song was about. And I kind of like, in a way, you know, I look at it in a way as my kind of Salisbury Hill. It's kind of, it's the moment of, of waking up and, and walking forward 
into something with possibility mm. again. And that, you know, whether that was with my new relationship with my wife or with uh, being a solo artist and having a very kind of, I don't know, a brand, a brand new outlook. And that's what, that's, you know, a nice way to look at that song. So I'm grateful for, to Craig for that, uh, for that opportunity. And that link and collaboration with Craig and Odds has, continues to, to the present. It must be great to have the support of such great musicians and artists. It really is. I mean, I used to always kind of joke when I was in Bare Naked Ladies and didn't ever foresee a day when I wouldn't be. I was like, if I was ever going to be in a rock band, I'd want to be in Odds. And, you know, they are just such amazing musicians, but also, you know, we share a great, we share a sense of humor. We have, we're great friends and understand each other, but they're all kind of the top in their field as far as like their playing, but also their taste, their economy, like Often when I'm writing a song, I think, you know, I'll go back to it's all been done. When I first wrote that, I was thinking, what would Craig Northey do in this situation? And when I, re- when I demoed that, I didn't put any bass in until the, the pre-chorus. I left it out of the verse because I thought, what would Doug Elliott do on the bass? Oh, he wouldn't play anything. So when he comes in, when he announces it, it feels like something. And so to be able to play with guys like that is just, it makes my job easy. And so fun. And they always come up with ideas that I never would have considered otherwise. As captain of this band of merry sailors, I'm a black mark, I'm a failure. But before you watch me drown, I'm relinquishing command for something I don't understand. This man's about to turn his whole life upside down. I set a course for a new
then finally, one of your songs that resonates the most with me is uh, there's a melody which um, for me conveys the healing power of, of music, either from an artistic perspective as an artist or as a listener in terms of what you get from that music. Is that what you were aiming for? Yeah, I was trying to initially, I was trying to express the frustration of like, you know, honestly, like it says, there's a melody somewhere inside of me. I can hear it, but I can't get it out of me. And it's, I think, I don't know how everybody else's brains and ears work, but I often, like, I carry some kind of melody with me. And whether it's like, I hum everywhere I go, people pass me and they're like, what are you humming? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> it's just this noise that comes out of me. And if I stop to think about it and think, oh, maybe I should write that down. Maybe that's, maybe that's my Maybe that's my song. And then I stop and I don't know what it is. I can't hear it anymore as soon as I start to think about it. And when you're trying to, sometimes when you're trying to write something, it's impossible to do it. And you have to just kind of close your eyes and let it happen. But you need to, it's this idea of drawing on your instinct, but also being disciplined enough to sit down and do the work. And that's a balance that I think is almost impossible to strike. And whether you are a professional or just a music lover, that's how I started with it. And then I remember one day being just on the cusp of sleep. I was lying in bed, almost asleep. And I had an idea for just for the backup vocal that says, keep going, keep going, yeah. keep going. And I thought, I ran downstairs to my studio in the basement and, and sang that. And I was almost instantly in tears. It was like, oh, it just all happened. All of a sudden, all of the different parts of that song came together. And it was relying on kind of that instinct but also the discipline of, of taking it seriously and doing the work. It was like the song was about something that it ended up actually becoming. And then that broadens out in terms of your live shows, because then communally you can celebrate and enjoy the music. And I guess, especially when we've had the COVID period where people have been yeah. isolating is that it means that songs like that have even more power. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the greatest feelings. I mean, there's nothing for me, there's nothing better than singing together with other people. And maybe that goes to back to my choir days, but it's like that is, to me, the most amazing feeling of singing with other people. I don't care whether they're good singers or bad singers, just voices together in a room is, is an amazing uh, feeling. And that's the one thing we couldn't do um, during COVID lockdown times. Like I've done 90-odd live from home Zoom concerts. And they're full-fledged two, two and a half hour shows and they're all different from each other. And it's been amazing. But I haven't been able to hear everybody's voices together in a room. We did make some videos where I had people send in, in the audience, send in videos of themselves singing along with songs like The Chorus Girl and New Shore and so on. And we, we edited them together and made these kind of virtual choirs, which was thrilling. But even more thrilling is to go to the gigs now and see all those people I've seen in their Zoom windows actually meet each other in person for the first time. That's brilliant. I mean, it's just a perfect way to end. And your tour over the U into the UK is is imminent. And uh, it sounds fantastic. And uh, more reasons than ever to come and see your fantastic music. So thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Stephen, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks, Jason. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.
melody somewhere inside of me I can hear it but can't get it out of me In my head it is soaring but when it comes out it is all the same note There's a melody somewhere inside of me I can hear it but can't get it out of me In my head it is soaring but when it comes out it is all the same note There's a melody somewhere inside of me I can hear it but can't get it out of me In my head it is soaring but when it comes out it is all the same note Instinct and discipline Like taking your medicine You've gotta push Through the unpleasantness Give it some time Just let it go Just close your eyes And soon you will for listening to the strange brew podcast if you do like the show please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online it's 10 years since i started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time all your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests to support me just go to the strangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. thank you very much Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.